Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of Changes Series 3 with me, Annie McManus. I launched this podcast at the beginning of 2020, totally oblivious to what the world and the human race was about to go through. None of us have ever lived through a pandemic before the year 2020. And it has changed us irrevocably. It's changed how we look at ourselves. It's changed how we've had to live our lives, our perceptions of society and what it means to us. It's changed the way we look at the world in general. At the time of recording, over 2.7 million people have died from coronavirus in the world, with over 126,000 of those people coming from the UK. Sadly, the impact does not stop there. Since the emergence of COVID-19, there's also been widespread concern about the effect of the pandemic and lockdown on people's mental health. Unable to see our friends and family in the usual way, or at all for a lot of people, many people living alone or having to isolate, job losses, shops, pubs and gyms being shut, basically putting an end to any normal idea of socialising and limiting our exercise. It's been a lot to adjust to. Given all the restrictions, it's not very surprising that common mental health conditions have significantly increased. As an example, according to the Office of National Statistics, between June 2019 and March 2020, 10% of adults were experiencing moderate to severe symptoms of depression. In June 2020, this had almost doubled to 19%. A survey by Young Minds, which questioned people between 13 and 25, found that in summer last year, 80% of respondents agreed that the coronavirus pandemic had made their mental health worse. And in February, 75% agreed that they were finding the current lockdown harder to cope with than the previous ones, with loneliness and isolation being the main factor. My guest this week is Dr. Stephen Taylor. He is an award-winning professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia. He's written loads of books, but he is significantly for this episode an author of a book called The Psychology of Pandemics. No one's ever written this book before. His knowledge is fascinating. We cover so much, past, present and future. The patterns of behaviour in different people around the world, the differences between past pandemics and this one, And most importantly, how we move forwards and how we bounce back. This is a really unique episode, reflecting on the biggest change the world has seen in a long time. I hope that you find it useful. Enter the podcast, Dr. Stephen Taylor. Dr. Stephen Taylor, hello and welcome to Changes. Thanks very much, Annie. So I was looking for this episode of Changes to be able to find someone that could give me really good context on pandemics and also just help our listeners to kind of understand what the hell has just happened over the last year in our lives and how we have adapted to it and how we can move into the future in the most sane and safe way possible. 
And I found your book, which is called The Psychology of Pandemics, the first ever comprehensive analysis of this subject. Mm. And was like, bingo, this man is our perfect guy. (laughs) It just seems so timely, the release of this book. And I wanted to ask, what were your motivations, firstly, for writing this book in the first place? Because you wrote it before any pandemic happened, am I right? Right. It was published in October 2019, a few weeks before COVID-19 broke out. So I knew a pandemic was coming. I just didn't think it would be so soon. My interest, my background is I'm a clinical psychologist and a lot of my my, uh, research and clinical work has to do with anxiety disorders, including health anxiety, that is people who have excessive worry about their health. Given that background in 2018, it was the centenary of the Spanish flu. And there were a lot of media interviews with virologists and historians and disease experts talking about what happened back then and then extrapolating it to the next pandemic. And I got interested in that. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that psychology is hugely important. Pandemics aren't about some microbe going viral. They're about what people do or don't do in addition to all the other socially disruptive things. And I realized that no one had ever put it together into a a single volume. So I did that. And in um, early 2019, I submitted it to my publisher, who'd been publishing my previous books, and he rejected it. He said, oh, it's an interesting idea, but no one's going to want to read this. (laughs) So I I felt really deflated (laughs) because I I thought, man, no, this is hugely important. The psychology of pandemics is important. So I found another publisher and uh, then then it got published. God, I bet that first publisher is kicking himself now. (laughs) Yeah, he is. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, such an interesting take on the fact that, you know, pandemics are by nature something that affects the entire of the human race. And no one's ever thought to kind of equate that with the psychology of how we work. Mm -hmm. I wanted to frame this conversation, if I may, in the past, the present and the future. That's what we do on this podcast. We kind of look at, at those three things through the prism of change. And if we can start with the past, and, you know, you mentioned it being the centenary of the Spanish flu in 2018. Mm. What is your knowledge of past pandemics and how this one has proven to be different? It all depends. Knowledge of past pandemics depends on how well they're documented, of course. There's been more research into the psychology of COVID-19 than there has been psychological research on all past pandemics. So we know a lot more about the psychology of pandemics uh, in 2020 versus in all periods before. That said, some of these pandemics were reasonably well documented. Um, And there have been more than 20 pandemics in the past 200 years. I guess most people don't know that. There's been a huge number of pandemics. For example, in the past 20 years, there's been seven cholera pandemics. Um, In the past 100 years, there's been six influenza pandemics. Uh, So there have been a ton of them. Uh, And their impact has varied depending on how how virulent they are, how easily they spread, how dangerous they are. Uh, but a lot of the things, the phenomena we're seeing during COVID-19 was seen uh, during the Spanish flu, during the Russian flu, which was in 1889, and during the SARS outbreak of 2003, thereabouts. So we're seeing a yeah. l- lot of similar phenomena, but th- there are some differences. What would you say is the one that's most equal to COVID in terms of how far it reached across the world? It's got to be the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. The reason why that's different, if you go back, say, to the Russian flu of 1889, that was the first pandemic in the era of the telegraph. 
and the you know, widespread dissemination of broadsheet newspapers. And so um, we have some of the early effects of the news media on pandemics then. Of course, it's much more dramatic nowadays. But to get back then, why that was different from pandemics today is there was no social distancing, there was no wearing of masks, and that had to do with their beliefs about how diseases were spread. Germ theory was kind of new back then. It was only a few decades old, but what was a more prevailing belief was in miasma, the idea that noxious mists or gases arising from rivers and swamps were the causes of infection. And so at night, people would crowd into their homes and shut all the windows to keep the bad air out. So they're in there coughing and sneezing over each other uh, and they just had no idea how this was being spread. They thought it was all due to miasma. And if you go back, you might have seen um, drawings or images of plague doctors from the Middle Ages, the people walking around with the hats and the big long beaks they were wearing. Mm. The beaks were full of aromatic herbs to keep the bad air out. So that was personal protective equipment circa 1650. But to jump forward to the Spanish flu of 1918, germ theory was clearly well established. They didn't have the technology to actually image a virus Viruses were more or less theoretical entities back then. They could see bacteria under the microscope and they thought this flu was caused by a virus. They couldn't see it though, but germ theory was established. And they thought, okay, we need to implement social distancing, the wearing of masks, cough etiquette, no spitting, those sorts of things. So they had all the lockdown procedures that we're having today. That's important because the biggest psychological impact of pandemics has to do with lockdowns because lockdowns are immensely stressful, uh, expensive and costly in terms of their impact on people's well-being. Now, lockdowns are important, but they really carry a significant price. And so all of that makes the Spanish flu very similar in many ways to COVID-19. And do you think that we learned anything from Spanish flu? Like, is there anything that came of that that was useful to us this time around? We learned that we forget things too quickly. Historians have, <laughs> have lamented. Historians, uh, even in the last decade, have described the Spanish flu as the forgotten pandemic. It was done. People said, let's forget about the Spanish flu. Let's get on and, and party it up. The Roaring Twenties came. We saw something similar uh, in 2020, where there were media reports about uh, people saying they wanted to forget 2020 and just move on. So I can understand that. So we didn't learn the lessons we should have learned from the Spanish flu. We were a bit slow on the uptake. We, we did learn that uh, it's a good idea to give a pandemic a neutral, serious-sounding name, that you don't name it after people, places or things. Uh, you don't call it Chinese flu. You don't call it Wuhan flu because that promotes racism. Um, give it a nice neutral name, uh, COVID-19, to get people's attention because it's serious sounding. So I think that's one of the main lessons we did learn. Some of the other lessons that were sort of learned was that if school closures are going to work or if social distancing is going to work, you've got to do it really quickly Mm. and thoroughly. And and this happened in places like China and Taiwan and uh, Japan and New Zealand who managed the pandemic fairly well because they were very quick to act. And I mean, speaking of memory and the idea of forgetting things, those places were the places, I'm not sure about New Zealand, but I know Hong Kong and Taiwan, I think were directly affected by SARS. So they had a pandemic in their recent history that they were able to 
measure this against, am I right? Exactly. Um, SARS was an epidemic, not a pandemic, although it's, it's kind of f- okay. fuzzy as to what qualifies as what, but it was pretty serious. And so, yes, in, in these Asian countries like Hong Kong and Taiwan, they had that recent memory of how bad it could be and how easily super spreading occurred during SARS. And so they were very swift to act in terms of, of, of lockdown and other forms of social distancing. And I mean, if we talk about now and this year that's happened and and how living through this pandemic has changed us and what we've learned, just keeping on that topic for a bit, I was so interested in the start when this all rolled out in how different countries reacted to it and different societies reacted to it. And it felt like that the idea of civic duty here in Europe or in the UK was a little bit absurd. Like no one, you know, since the war, no one's really had to like do what the government says in that way and all rally together. But it felt like in those Asian countries, there was a much quicker response and a much bigger kind of easier adaptation from civilization just to do what they were told and, and do it quickly. Mm-hmm. It's always challenging to, to, um, to talk about cultural trends because you've got to be careful about stereotyping. But that sure. said, there is a tendency in Asian countries to have more of a collectivist culture. So you're wearing a mask out of respect for the other person because you might have a cold Mm. and you don't want to uh, give a cold to someone else. So there's that whole culture of mask wearing and and more of a collectivist sort of approach, whereas Western countries tend to be more individualistic, that we're, we're taught to value our freedom and pandemics require people to give up bits of their freedom. We have to agree to stay home or not go to the pub and to wear masks. And for those of us who are strongly taught to value freedom, um, it, it elicits something called psychological reactance, where, where people get angry and indignant and uh, generate arguments for, for not staying home and not wearing masks, and it, it, it elicits protests. Mm. Um, just staying on, on that kind of the differences in, in cultures and stuff, it felt over here as well, and a lot in America, just the idea of trusting a government. You know, there's a lot of trust involved, isn't there, when you're a government and you have to make people do things. And it felt over here, you know, the idea of protest. A lot of people didn't trust the government to be doing the right thing. And and especially in the UK, because they were slow on the uptake. And we could see, you know, I'm Irish, so I saw how quickly Ireland locked down. And we could see everything happening over in Italy, the whole country locking down. And there was a bit of a panic here. It was like, why is our Cheltenham races happening with 20,000 people in a stadium? Why are these big concerts happening? And in Ireland, the pubs aren't even open. Mm-hmm. So there was that kind of panicky feeling of... Do we trust our government? Yeah, exactly. Well, part of it has to do with all the uncertainties around pandemics, a huge amount of uncertainty. So SARS turned out to be serious and Hong Kong and Taiwan learned the lessons from SARS and lockdown quickly. We had experience, well, in many countries with the so-called swine flu in 2009. And many governments acted very swiftly and then were criticised for overreacting because the pandemic turned out to be fairly mild. So it depends on on where you're going to put your money, where you're going to gamble. So Britain gambled and lost. Boris Johnson thought, oh, it's just like a little bit of the flu. Let's go to the pub and shake hands. And soon enough, he's in intensive care. He gambled on this being like swine flu, being a mild uh, infection. Now, if he turned out to be right, everyone would be saying, well, Britain was the model for this because they didn't (laughs) overreact. 
But uh, yeah. no, it turned out to be the other way. So, you know, you've got these uncertainties, you gamble in a particular direction because shutting down the economy in lockdown is hugely expensive, as I mentioned. And so I can understand mm-hmm. why they were trying to delay. And this happened in many countries, a sort of hopefulness or wishful thinking, well, maybe it won't be as bad as we fear and we'll be able to save the economy. But no, that didn't turn out to be the case. So let's talk about the psychology of the journey of people's psyches through through this as it happened. So initially you, you, you touched on it, the idea of kind of anger. So you're being locked down, your your freedom is being taken away from you. How does that affect people in general? Like, is there patterns to behaviour when that happens? There are patterns and um, there are some general trends, but you know, everyone's different in their own way. Sure. But w- what's happening is in the media, people are getting a distorted picture of the bad behaviour. Because it's, you know, it's a vocal minority of people that are anti-mask, uh, anti-lockdown, and, and they get caught on the media. All the people behaving well don't get reported on the news. So the majority of people who are okay with wearing masks, who have this grumbling acceptance to going into lockdown, most people, they're not reported in the news because they're just doing the right thing. But the, the, those small protesters are caught That said, there have been lots of studies tracking people's um, moods and emotions over the course of COVID-19. And initially, there was a lot of anxiety. People were worried about getting infected. And still, there are still many people who are are anxious about COVID-19. But what's been happening is this whole thing drags out. The longer lockdown lasts, the, the anxiety has tended to abate. But this persistence of what's called pandemic fatigue, this kind of burnout with a low-grade depression and irritability, that's persisted. So many people are feeling cranky the longer the lockdowns last. They're frustrated, they want to get out, they want to socialise with friends. And so that has been an issue. Yeah. But we've also been looking at extremes. There are extremes of people who, are, who re- remain persistently anxious. And at the other extreme, there are people who think the whole thing's a hoax and no big deal. Like at the start over here, I remember, you know, the panic buying. And I remember going to the supermarket and there just being like reams of empty shelves and people running around with their trolleys overloaded. And I remember ringing my family back in Ireland and they were about kind of two or three weeks ahead of us in lockdown. And my dad was like, don't worry, everyone just calms down after a while. And he was totally Mm -hmm. right. Um, so this initial yeah. total panic and it's that kind of domino effect of seeing other people panicking. So thinking you should panic. And is that really interesting, that, isn't it? The kind of idea of mirroring other people's behavior because you don't know what's right or wrong. So it's kind of you need to cling on to something. Exactly. And episodes of panic buying now, they, they routinely occur every time we're threatened with lockdown you'll get a a spurt of panic buying. But your dad was right. The thing to do, and there's research on this, uh, episodes of panic buying last about a week. That's it. They they come in spurts and then they die down. So if you hear about people going down to the local shops here, local Tesco and and panic buying beans and beer and toilet paper, (laughs) most people think, oh no, there's panic buying. I better rush down and get ahead of the crowd. But that line of thinking puts you in the middle of the crowd because everyone's thinking the same thing. So if you understand that episodes last about a week, if you hear about people panic buying, the key is to to hold back. If you can stick it out for a week, then you'll get to the store, the shelves will be restocked and the crowds will be dispersed.
Let's talk about, so we have panic, we have the anger and the kind of feeling of being locked down and freedom being taken away. But then if we move forwards to, you know, the the after effects of uh, once, once lockdown has happened, of loneliness and being separated from family and being separated from friends, without the knowledge of knowing when you're going to see them again, it feels like a quite specific, mm-hmm. a quite unique type of loneliness. I can only equate it to what it would be like to be in prison or something like that. You know, you're deliberately being locked away mm-hmm. from people. How does that change a person? Well, it's interesting. The lockdown we're experiencing today is nothing compared to the lockdown of 1918. When whole homes were quarantined if there was an outbreak of influenza. And when you're in lockdown in 1918, you're in lockdown. There was no radio, no TV, no Netflix. <laughs> If you were lucky, you had a couple of books in the house and a telephone. That was it. So that experience was different. For a COVID-19-style lockdown, initially people thought, well, maybe the model to understand this is to look at how people cope with extreme environments. Okay. For ex- example, astronaut selection, people who live in confined extreme environments. That was used as a model for a while. Turned out that was wrong as well because lockdown during COVID is very different from being an astronaut. You're actually socially and richly connected with most people, even though you have to stay in your apartment. And there was a lot of research in in the media saying that, well, this is like Christmas time for introverts and this is very difficult for extroverts. But it turns out that that's not true. Your personality has uh, introversion, extroversion has very little to do with how well you cope during lockdown. What really matters more is is whether you have a history of anxiety problems and whether you whether your living circumstances are stressful, that is, you're, you're physically isolated at one extreme or overcrowded at the other extreme. And there has been an increase, tragically, of domestic violence yeah. during lockdown where crowded people fueled with alcohol get into fights. So it's mainly been the stresses and people's history of emotional problems that have made life difficult in lockdown. But the interesting thing is most people, when they're released from lockdown, just bounce back majority of people and that just shows how resilient human beings Mm, are mm. yeah I mean I want to get to that to stepping out of lockdown and and how we adapt again back into normality but just keeping with them this last year and how we've changed and how it's affected us can we talk about kids Stephen and I have two boys myself you know they they've been out of school for the whole first part of this year for the whole first three months of this year and I'm interested in how this will affect them in general and if it will at all Yeah, it affects kids differently depending on their developmental age uh, and their particular circumstances. So for very young children who don't understand what's going on and are told that, no, you can't go to the park to play with your friends, you have to stay inside, that can be very frustrating for them. And unless Mm. parents set set a schedule for them and so forth, you will get some increase in stress in the children and they'll they'll start to um, become more irritable, more tantrums, more difficulty sleeping. So that can impact them that way. And of course, everything bounces off everything else. If you're trying to work from home as a young parent and you've got a stressed out, tantruming child, you're multitasking in a very stressful way. Mm. For older children, my kids are 13 and 15 and my daughter, 13 year old, complained to me the other day that this will be her second birthday under lockdown. Oh, Uh, bless her. But for them, just like many other kids, their stress has to do with boredom and managing the uh, the technology around learning from home, mm. trying to learn learn uh, remotely via Zoom or Teams at school, that, that they're finding that stressful, and of course the disconnect from their friends. Mm. Mm. 
So, Stephen, um, you mentioned the fact, the very reassuring fact that most people bounce back after a pandemic. And that was going to be one of my questions for you is, could we be psychologically scarred from this? What I mean by that is the idea that I feel like, again, especially in the Western world where we don't have a recent history of pandemics, we have kind of illusions of safety. We have illusions that there's a kind of invincibility to how we live because we don't have anything in our recent history that has jeopardized our our existence in a major way. We don't have natural disasters really come near us. We don't live in those kind of fault lines where there's volcanoes or earthquakes or anything like that. It's kind of in this pocket of the world that seems relatively touch wood safe from that kind of thing. So could we be psychologically scarred if we're not used to the idea of thinking of ourselves as as a kind of fallible species? Um, Some people will be, but they're a minority of people. They will be scarred. But I'm particularly thinking of the people who've lost loved ones, who've suffered tragic deaths during the pandemic, or people who've developed COVID and been hospitalised and have developed post-traumatic stress disorder as a result. And that is a risk factor. If you're hospitalised for COVID, some people do unfortunately develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you develop that and long COVID, then you'll be at risk of being psychologically scarred and will need mental health assistance. Now, that said, there are a minority of people that the big challenge is trying to estimate what proportion of people would end up in that situation. It's really hard to say, but we're thinking it's going to be a minority. Most people will bounce back, but it could be that for some people and perhaps many people, there will be subtle effects on them. If you go back to 1918 again, the Spanish flu, Let's say 1919, everyone was wearing masks in North America. 1921, if you look at pictures from there, no one's wearing masks. They just forgot about it and got on with their lives and ushered in the roaring 20s. Now, most people bounce back, but there is evidence in the historical record of some individuals becoming lifelong uh, frugal people, people storing things in the cupboard, making sure they had a two-week supply of things, of impacting people in subtle ways. And that's what I wonder about the impact of COVID-19 on young people today, that it could be that in subtle ways that we haven't identified yet, it, it could influence them in the longer terms. But so far during COVID, what we're seeing is this overwhelming bounce back. You've probably seen the images of Wuhan in August uh, after the release of lockdown. There were these massive parties. Mm. One in particular was a pool party where they had uh, bands and and concerts and so forth. And it was just packed with people. And we're seeing this today. Spring spring break in America, the police had to pepper spray the crowds because they wouldn't wouldn't stop partying. But it happened in the UK too. And there were images from Bournemouth in the summertime of the beach being just packed with people yeah that uh, yeah. and we've been doing su- surveys as well in europe and the uk uh, asking people do you think you'll get back to mass events stadium events and so forth and most people say yeah they can't wait to get back to these big events so for most people COVID-19 might leave very little residual trace on them psychologically at all. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because just today um, I I do a radio show every night and I had to talk about um, a festival, a big music festival here that just released their lineup and loads of festivals today have officially launched with lineups and ticket sales. In September, they've all kind of relocated to to September as a kind of safer zone and time to to exist. But there's also, and I've seen it on, on social media, a lot of people talking about this anxiety of 
going back to that of being part of a big crowd and kissing and hugging people and as lovely as it sounds just there's something kind of entrenched in us now to equate that kind of physical connection with danger you know we've kind of been so trained to believe that it is endangering someone to hug them and kiss them I don't know I think a lot of people are worried about that and worried for their own safety even if they have been vaccinated it's still it's kind of hard to unlearn that it is, but you'd be surprised how rapidly people do unlearn After two pints, we're, we're more... they've forgotten completely. <laughs> exactly. Probably in anticipation of having two pints, that would be enough. <laughs> but if you go back to 2018, and if I said to you, oh, next year everyone's going to be wearing masks, you would say, no way. There's no way that people in London are going to be out wearing masks. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we have trouble in envisioning the future. It's just called the anchoring bias. We, we predict our future based on how we're feeling right now. If we're in lockdown feeling blue and, and, and a little stressed and worried about getting infected, we're going to not be able to imagine going to a stadium event or a football game or so forth. And indeed, the first few times people do that, you walk into a, a crowded arena where no one is wearing masks, many people will feel apprehensive. Yeah. But I think they'll be surprised at how quickly they become accustomed to it. They adapt again to the, the next set of normal conditions. Stephen, can you tell me where all the lockdown babies are or where they aren't? I mean, there's been statistics, hasn't there, saying that there's been a massive slump in births in the US and, 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 and in, in Europe. I think there was an assumption that maybe there'd be loads of babies, but not so. Yeah, um, the same thing happened with the Spanish flu. There was a, a massive decline in the birth rate um, for, for that and other reasons. But I guess it's because people are, are threatened with infection. And when you get threatened with infection, the idea of bringing more human beings into the world becomes not particularly appealing. And I think people were predicting a baby boom based on experience with World War II, but the situation is, is very different. Mm. World War II, it, you know, had a very clear end, VE Day and so forth. The world war was on, then it wasn't. It isn't happening with the pandemic. I remember last year in 2020 when the infection rates were going down, I thought, oh, well, that's the first wave. I guess we can expect a second wave to come. But there were plenty of people around me saying, yay, the pandemic is over. Yeah. Uh, No, and it took a while for people to learn, oh, they come in waves. And so it's going to be some time before we can figure out whether this is over or not. So this is how this is very different from wars. So I, I wouldn't think people are going to be rushing out to, to make babies um, in the current climate because of all the uncertainty. Yeah, but then you've got all these couples who are stuck together and, and under the same roof. You know, all these people working from home that normally don't see each other. Um, surely the husbands and wives or the partners would be making babies because they're with each other all the time. I'm, I'm guessing they probably have recreational sex, but if you're stressed out um, and trying to juggle things from home and worried about your, uh, whether you can pay the rent or, or the future, I guess that doesn't really enhance your sex drive. I think there's been an increase in divorces as well, hasn't there? Yes, yes, that and domestic yeah. violence, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Just talking about people and, and again, the lack of ability to date and the idea of any sort of physical contact being dangerous, you know, how does that affect someone when they're not actually physically able to, no matter how much they want to, to to have romantic relationships? I think this is part of why we're seeing an increase of depressed mood 
over time in communities. It's not so much the fear of infection, it's all these effects of lockdown that people can't pursue their, their lives, they can't pursue relationships, and some people are isolated and lonely. And uh, Human beings are social animals, and lockdown requires us to inhibit that instinct to be social so we're cut off from all the things that bring us meaning and enjoyment in life and so it's not surprising that people are bored and lonely and some people are getting depressed about this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's been a lot of societal changes in 2020 and a huge increase in recognition of social justice issues for women, for black people, for Asian people, um, a lot of protest. Do you think that could be anything to do with the pandemic? Has that kind of been part of that, do you think? Could be. Um, an unfortunate thing of, of all the serious pandemics I've studied is this rise of racism. Um, if you go back to the bubonic plague in the 1300s, Jewish people were targeted. You go back to uh, SARS or so-called swine flu, uh, there was a rise of Asian racism. And I guess that has to do with human beings are fundamentally tribalistic. You know, we have an us versus them kind of way, worldview, and this is why you have football teams, my team versus your team, and so forth. Right. So you have that, but the people who are highly frightened of getting infected tend to be highly xenophobic. So they tend to be frightened of, excessively frightened of foreigners. And then you had political leaders who insist on calling the, uh, the pandemic the Chinese virus, and that incites hatred. Mm. So we had this rise of Asian racism, and, and including assaults and violence. And I think that caused a backlash societally. Um, and of course, there are all these other things happening as well uh, in the meantime. Of course, people are trying to find ways of coping with this pandemic. And one way, which has happened in the past, is altruism, coming together as a community. And that's consistent with people being tribalistic as well. I guess maybe this is why um, some of these social justice things have come up too, that people are trying to find some way of feeling in control of this pandemic and doing something or giving back to your community is one way of doing that. Mm. Um, again, being on the radio every night throughout this whole year, has been so fascinating for bringing everyone together in a very simple way. So everyone being mm. able to have this collective experience of listening to the same song together, even though they're they're separate. And and that was one of the lovely things about lockdown is the idea of, you know, even though people are physically alone, feeling like they were 
together more than ever, connected, uh, all under these rules, all going through these same hardships and, and these same things. I wanted to ask you about the role of, of, of social media in this whole pandemic. What kind of role has, has it played? Um, it's a two-edged sword. It, it plays a great role in bringing people together. So our lockdown is not like the lockdown in 1918. We're able to connect with people socially. But it's also had a lot of disruptive effects too. For people who get their news from social media, they're likely to get a distorted and sensationalised picture of the world. And we're finding that many anxious people are spending hours a day on social media looking at news. So they describe it almost like going down a rabbit hole where you click one story, then the next, and, and suddenly they're being exposed to conspiracy theories or, or fake news or things like mm. that that is ramping up their anxieties. The other thing that social media has done is it's, it's fueled these protest movements, things like the anti-mask movement or anti-lockdown movements. Again, if you go back to 1919, in San Francisco, they tried to uh, mandate the wearing of face masks. And some people protested and the anti-mask league was formed. And the arguments then are the same as they are today. They said, we don't want to wear masks because we don't think they work, they're uncomfortable, and they're a violation of our civil liberties. Same yeah. reasons today. The difference being the anti-mask league kind of petered out. They didn't have social media to, to fuel it along. And that's, that's made this pandemic different too. Yeah. Really interesting that whole that whole side of things. There was a huge debate, wasn't there, at the start between medical professionals, and it was very hard at the start to know what to do. As we know, with the nature of social media, there's so many opinions. We know that social media is terrible for anxiety anyway, but with the added pressure of knowing the right thing to do and trying to find the right thing to do in a pandemic, it must be brutal for anxiety sufferers. Yeah, and it ties into something that's called the infodemic. And what that is is simply a deluge of information, uh, accurate information, erroneous information and fake news. And it, and it can become very difficult for consumers to sort out which is true and which is fake. And, and getting to the, the point you said about face masks, part of the problem is there's been an infodemic of research as well, which has changed our yeah. views on how to manage COVID-19. So if we go back to the beginning of 2020, the WHO came out and said, you people in the community don't wear face masks because we don't think they work for the community. They make you touch your face and rub your eyes and you need to save the face masks for healthcare workers. Well, it turns out the WHO were wrong on all three counts. Face masks do work in the community. There's been research showing they don't make you touch your eyes or rub your mouth or things like that. And us wearing cloth face masks leaves plenty of N95s for healthcare workers. So I can understand how their views would change as the research evolved, but the problem is you've got that infodemic, people in the community get confused. Oh, you were saying don't wear masks, now you're saying we have to wear masks. And so this changing of opinion can undermine the credibility of, of health authorities as well. Yeah, and, and totally undermine the trust that you have for your authorities and you can understand why people might be just like, I'm just going to do this my way, because like, it's too overwhelming otherwise, isn't it? Exactly. Stephen, I wanted to move on to the third section of the conversation now. And, and to get us there, I, I saw a cartoon in The New Yorker today, and it was a woman on a sofa staring into the distance saying, I can't wait to forget everything I learned about myself during quarantine. <laughs> Which I thought <laughs> was a nice way of looking forwards. 
I mean, you've already touched on this somewhat in that most of us will bounce back way quicker than we thought. But if you don't mind, if we can just kind of zoom in on a couple of things there. Mm -hmm. I've already felt this personally, um, which is so strange because my job is to talk on the radio. So I, I have conversations every night. But the idea of having a real conversation with a friend out or, or, or even two friends suddenly feels alien. How easy will it be for people to get back into knowing how to talk and how to be in a group of people again? There will be a group that can't wait to get back. These are the people who didn't think it was much of a big deal to begin yeah. with, who, who weren't socially just, they'll be, they'll be the first ones at the pub. For the rest of us, it will be a little more of a gradual process and, and that will probably follow the way things are unfolded because I wouldn't expect that suddenly all restrictions will be lifted. There'll be a gradual lifting of restrictions and people will get to adapt to each stage. So suddenly they'll be, yeah. will be allowed to meet in bigger groups. So that will be that gradual process and that will allow people to become comfortable with the next step in getting back to socialising. But I think what's going to be good there to motivate people is most of us can't wait to get back and socialise with others. Despite our apprehensions, um, we're all sick of lockdown. So I think people will be bouncing back a lot more quicker than most people anticipate. And I wonder, is all, you know, the way that we communicate now, as I am to you, you know, on Zoom, always with a screen between us, will that have any lasting impact on, on how we communicate as a whole? That's a really interesting question. I wonder if we'll be seeing more Zoom meetings just out of the sheer convenience. I had my doubts as to whether people in North American or European countries will persist in wearing face masks, but that's a different issue. I think we're going to see um, a rise in more telecommuting from work or to work. That said, however, we're all social creatures and the workplace is in, in many ways a social environment. So I think people will be getting back to work rather than spending all their lives working from home. I mean, I'm interested as well in, in the kind of after effects of spending a year staring at your own face while you're having conversations with people. That's not a natural thing to do. And I, I can imagine there's been a lot of people wanting to make serious changes about how they look on the basis of just being confronted with themselves every mm. day in meetings. Linked to that uh, with lockdown and people being stressed, there has been an increase in, in obesity. So people aren't getting exercise, they're eating because they're stressed. Um, and so there has been weight increases and, and, and with that dissatisfaction with body image. And I suppose mm. having to look at yourself on a, on a computer screen every day might not help either. So that might take some time for, for some people to, to um, recover from. Yeah, I'm interested in this time that we've had, again, just being confronted with ourselves, not in a physical way, but just in, in terms with where our lives are right now, who, who we've decided to live with, you know, where we've decided to live, the careers we've decided to have, the choices that we've made. It's been a reckoning of sorts, and it feels like a lot of people have made some quite extreme decisions off the back of having to really do an audit on their lives. Exactly. And that ties into a phenomenon that's called post-traumatic growth. And we've been doing a bit of research on this topic. It's the idea that you go through an ordeal, a trauma or a pandemic, and you don't just bounce back to where you were, but you actually grow as a human being. So you come out the other end as a better human being. Now, this doesn't happen to everyone, but for many people, um, they're describing so-called silver linings as a result of this pandemic. 
And these aren't the people who got put on ventilators, obviously, who developed post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a different situation entirely. But for the people who went through this, who didn't get sick, who are saying, yeah, they have report silver linings, things like, oh, I was more resilient to stress than I thought I was, or I learned things about myself, or I learned to have a better appreciation for friends and family, or learned to appreciate the little things in life, or developed a deepening spirituality. So it looks like there has been a positive reckoning in some ways for uh, many people. Although the question is whether those, those changes will be enduring. I remember the first time I went to a restaurant after lockdown, I thought, this is just awesome. This is the best thing ever. A breadstick never tasted so good. <laughs> <laughs> but how quickly am I going to forget about that when I get into the habit of going out to restaurants? Yeah. So, so I wonder whether some of these positive changes might be short-lived, but I'm hoping others will be more enduring, such as um, yeah. better stress resilience or a, a greater faith in one's community. Yeah. So tell me what that phrase is again, post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, post-traumatic growth. Yeah. I mean, it's lovely to think that there is some silver linings off the back of this. And I think it's it's really important for people to try and seek those out and, and to kind of look at the year um, as well as being scary and frightening and potentially, you know, life-threatening and changing our existence in a negative way. Like, what has it done that has been positive? Is there anything else that you can give us, Stephen, in terms of, like, useful things, exercises that we can be doing in our heads or ways of thinking about what's happened to us that can serve us well moving forward. What this pandemic may have done for many people is got them more attuned to their own mental health. That is getting better at identifying when they're stressed out, identifying the warning signs. And being stressed out doesn't mean you have a, a mental disorder. It, you know, it could mean that you're just more anxious than you want to be. So getting away from the stigma or labels so I'm hoping that people as communities are getting better at their own, uh, if you like, emotional intelligence, being to identify when they're getting right. stressed out and then to realise, oh, I, I need to do the things I'd learnt to do during lockdown. You know, get some exercise or, uh, heaven forbid, a Zoom yoga class or something like yeah. that. So getting, getting better in touch with their emotions. Yeah, that kind of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, I've learnt so much post-traumatic growth is what I'm going to stick to and try and um, cling to and identify for myself. I learned how to make a bird feeder. That was pretty good. I've learned oh, about bird cool. song. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Annie, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Absolute pleasure. Dr. Stephen Taylor's book, The Psychology of Pandemics, is out now, although it's currently sold out on Amazon. Uh, we put a link in the show notes. I mean, the whole world's going to be wanting to read that book right now. So props to him for fighting to get that published. If you are struggling or if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, remember, there's always someone that you can talk to or text. The best place that we recommend is the Samaritans. They can be reached on 116-123. Check the show notes for details outside the UK and Ireland. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to wish you all the best for the next kind of three or four months. I was really encouraged by a lot of what Dr. Stephen Taylor told us about how quickly we bounce back. Thought it was really interesting in how we frame the future from the lens of where we are in the present, how you can't really predict how you're going to feel until you're in the moment. 
I also loved what he said about the silver linings and about, you know, looking for the good things that have come out of this. And I think that's a really healthy exercise, isn't it? Trying to think about the things that you've learned and that you've gained from having to live through a time like this. So yeah, let us know what you thought of the episode. We will shout you out on the podcast. I wanted to remind you as well, when it comes to change, I've been going through a huge personal change in the last few years. I like to call it a bit of a cruise ship change, of course, if you imagine me as the cruise ship it's been a very slow change moving out of the kind of mad whirlwind life of DJing and into a bit of a more measured and quieter life which has involved this podcast of course but also writing which is something I only started on turning 40 and I've spent the last couple of years writing a book called Mother Mother which is getting so close now to publication it comes out at the end of May but you can pre-order it now it's set in Belfast and it's about a mother who disappears and the journey of her son in finding her. Last week we had fellow author Katie Price on the podcast and you guys had a lot to say about it. An absolutely huge reaction to Katie on the podcast. Hello Emma Fenwick who said, uh, wow, how can one person go through so much trauma and be able to pick herself up and move forward? Hello Maza Vaza who says, I love her. She's been judged, ridiculed and cruelly tormented by press and public. I see her as a lioness of a woman. Hello, Cassius Trey. He says, love, 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 love this. You need another 10 episodes with her to discuss every subject. Her kids and family must be so proud of her coming through such traumas and troubles and being the strongest and happiest it seems like she's ever been. Well done, Katie. And Annie, this podcast is amazing. Thank you. And have to do this one as well from Neil, who says, I didn't think I would enjoy this episode as I've never been a lover of Katie Price, but I actually warmed to her and felt so sorry for her. It shows how strong a person she has been through after all that great show so yeah really happy to allow people to have the time that they should have with someone like Katie Price who you only ever see represented in very fragmented ways in mainstream media to actually have 40 minutes to just hear her talk and hear a little bit of her life story is incredibly insightful and um, I'm working on trying to get a part two with Katie um, trying to have a bit more time with her because I think so many of you wanted that so we're going to try and work on that now please do not forget to rate review and subscribe it's so appreciated when you do that i'm going to be back next monday for the final episode of this series thank you for listening this episode was produced by louise mason with research from Layla simone springer through rethink audio see you next time When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.